Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Sharon Moore, and I'm one of your hosts. And on this podcast, we talk to Hoffman graduates about how their courageous journey inward impacted their personal lives, but also how it impacted their community and the world at large. So tune in and listen in and hear how our graduates' authentic selves, how their love, how their spirits are making a positive impact on our world today. In other words, get to know their love's everyday radius. All right, welcome back, everybody. Today, my guest is Nita Gage. Now, Nita happens to be a fellow Hoffman teacher, but there is so much more. She has a doctorate degree in shamanic psychospiritual psychology, a master's degree in clinical psychology, is a certified addiction counselor. She's been a therapist, a counselor, a coach, a facilitator for her entire career. Talk about being devoted to people's healing and transformation. She also happens to be the author of two books, The Women in Storage Club, How to Reimagine Your Life, and Soul Whispering, The Art of Awakening Shamanic Consciousness. Lastly, I should say she happens to be one of my all-time favorite human beings, and she is often the person I go to when I need guidance, when I need love, when I need truth-telling. So people, I am so excited to have her on the show. Nita, welcome. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Thank you for that very sweet introduction. I'm actually just completely honored to be here with you because you're also one of my go-to people. Oh, yay. We love each other, people. It's a fact. Let's just admit it. Let's just say it. Exactly. We've declared it. Nita, I want to start with Hoffman since that is how you and I met. And obviously we're on the Hoffman podcast. I'm curious, when did you take the, the process? I took the process in 2006. It's shocking to me how long that's been. I always sort of feel like it was just recently because I feel that aliveness of all the transformation that happens. And and the other day when I was thinking about doing this podcast, I thought, wow, has it really been that long? I tend to think I've taken it recently, but you know. So I have two questions, but I'm going to start with the first one. Do you, do you recall what called you to take the process in the first place? To be honest, I wasn't called at all to take the process. I was working with a friend of mine, Lee Lipsenthal, who's a physician I was leading workshops with. And through a long story, he ended up taking the process. And so he told me about it. And at the time, I thought, you know, I've done a lot of these kinds of things, lots of workshops. I really don't need one more. I resisted. I didn't want to do it. Honestly, I kind of went kicking and screaming and finally just decided, okay, okay, I'll go. I had no idea what, how it was going to change my life so dramatically. Knowing you the way I know you, I am not surprised at all to know that you went kicking and screaming. That just fits, fits the bill. Now, you say it feels like just yesterday. Is that because it's still so alive in your day-to-day life? Or what does that mean that it feels like it was just yesterday that you took the process? Yes, it it is very alive. I mean, and I suppose also because I am a teacher, I am redoing the process over and over. As you know, Sharon, that's part of what it's like for us in a way to redo it. But also, I think, yes, that that there's this sense of every day is, is new and fresh. I just felt like a rebirth at the at that process. And so it it just keeps coming back to me. Yeah. It's, it's not like something I've done, you know, as I said, I've done a lot of stuff and, and a lot of it's in the background. I don't really 
think about these other workshops I've done, but somehow Hoffman is in the forefront. And I'm not sure how else to explain that. Are there moments where you feel like you can tell, oh, this is a situation where I would have once reacted this way, but now I'm showing up this way? Yes, all the time. Can you share anything? Yes. At the moment, I'm going through a big transition. I'm um, selling my house and I'm going to move. And in the past, I would have been extremely controlling and anxious about the details, about making things happen. I would have made myself nuts and sick and crazy. And instead, I pause when I feel the, the, the fear, the trepidation come up, and I put my hands on my heart. And I remind myself that I love myself, and I'm so grateful to be alive and, and move back into that really present place. And then the tasks are just, okay, got to do this, got to do that. It becomes, I'm not controlling it, I'm more surrendered. And that's regular. Yeah. I, honestly, I've known you for a while now, and I can't imagine you being any other way. And of all my sources of support, you are one that always goes back to Hoffman tools, no matter what. I can't tell you how many times I'm like, Nita, I need your help. And, she, and I almost said she, and you will say, um, have you thought about filling out a transference sheet about that? Or, <laughs> and I roll my eyes and I'm like, you're absolutely right. Let's recycle. Let's do a transference. Yes. It's it. That is why it's, it's so alive in me is you know, as you said, I've written a couple of books, I've led a lot of different workshops. And yet the tools and practices from Hoffman are the ones I've ended up using. I don't, I don't do other practices much anymore. I do a little bit. Yet I really find those tools and practices. They're so, they're so um, simple, not easy at times, but they're simple. And I love them. I love what Hoffman gives us this really just really simple way to get at deep transformation and change. That really impresses me. I, this is what I love about teaching is that I'm reminded it's one thing to have had the transformation happen in my own experience, but then going back to teach, like you said, it's not just reliving it, but it's re being convicted and being uh, affirmed at the power, the simplicity and the power of it. So between 2006, I think there was another, what, 10 or so years before you became a teacher? Were you called to be a teacher or was it just a happen to fall on your lap? No, I felt, I did feel called, although I didn't feel called right away. There was actually a teacher training process about a year after I did the process. And at that time, I was deeply steeped in leading workshops in Hawaii and other places. And it just wasn't calling to me. Uh, but in a way, it was, I have to say, honestly, I kind of felt a tug then, but it wasn't the right time. So the, when it was the right time, it uh, was, was just incredible divine intervention. I had been living in England and Cambridge for a while, and I had come back to California and was a, kind of floating around, loose ends. I had retired from my other careers, and and I just suddenly... It really literally woke up one day and thought, ah, I need to do something. And the email came across that they were hiring again. And I was 63 at the time. You might remember, Sharon. I do. I thought to myself, oh, my God, I'm too old. This is ridiculous. I can't go train as a teacher. But I did contact um, Connie Comstock, who was one of the teachers in my process, who's retired now, but I love dearly. And 
she, um, and I said to her, am I too old? Should I do this? And she laughed at me <laughs> and said, apply. <laughs> so, so I did, I did. And, and, you know, I did get hired and, and it was, um, quite a process to start to train to do this at my age, but I'm so happy I did. I mean, you were the oldest one in our group, but you also were the one with the most energy, the first to teach, the first to finish the training, um, the one to teach the most in our first year as teachers. So um, I support Connie's reaction. I do too. I do too. And it did really completely feel spirit led. It was, it was a really interesting process for me. Just kept listening to spirit. Again, using the Hoffman tools as I was going, I, I really, you know, had to really hit the wall a few times around uh, in, in the training, but just kept using the tools. And here I am. Yeah. Spirit led. That's, that's how I experience you in, in, in all the chapters that I've experienced you in. And, and what a treat to, for any students who are in the presence of a teacher who is spirit led in, in all other aspects of their life too. It, it does make a difference. I, I've had this thought when I think about you often, and, and um, you know, we're, we're often with people who are devoted to healing and people's transformations, but I'm rarely in the presence of somebody who has only done that their entire career. What keeps you going? How, how do you overcome things like compassion fatigue? And what's, the, what's your secret? Well, I have experienced compassion fatigue, and I took a time out from being a therapist, um, I think, in the early 80s. I really hit the wall, and that was because at the time, I was trained as a psychoanalyst, and I actually was trained in England, and then I came back to America. And at that time, there was really a, an actual taboo against therapists speaking of anything spiritual. There was there was a big dividing line, like you know, it had to be secular. It couldn't be look, you know, smack of religion at all. I mean, we're so used to now, and certainly in the process, but even in therapy, people are talking about their spirituality and their spirit and their um, all of that. But at the time, it wasn't allowed, and so I would be sitting in these sessions with people, and I worked in a psychiatric hospital too. And uh, people are extreme states. And it was so apparent to me that they were having spiritual crisis. They were having spiritual emergencies. And I, I was forbidden to really speak to that. So I'd sort of dance around it in whatever way I could, but really had to keep it about their, not only about their emotional life, but about their brain chemistry. And that was a lot of why I got compassion fatigue. So I dropped out and for a few years. <laughs> couple of years, I taught computer programming to children in schools. You probably never even knew that about me. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Say that again. You taught computer programming to kids in schools? You've never told me this. This was in the early days when Apple was just coming out. And I mean, they, schools didn't even hardly have computers, if you can imagine that, some of you out there that are much younger than me. But I got hooked into um, the programming language logo, which was created by an MIT professor. And the odd thing was is that that logo had this element of transformation in it. I won't even, you know, I could go on for hours about it. But anyway, I was really excited about teaching this language to children instead of letting computers just be another TV screen that they were looking at. So I did that for a while. But then I started missing the, the healing profession as it was. And so I, I decided to, to get back into it. 
And I did. I got back into it and again worked in psychiatric hospitals. And then I got into, moved into uh, creating addiction treatment programs in hospitals and eventually in nonprofits and outpatient because here is the theme again the addiction field was the first one to say, you know, addiction is a spiritual crisis. So, I could talk about, you know, people's spiritual, the deeper meaning, the process they were going through in the addiction field, but not in the mental health field. It was very odd. All of that, fortunately, has changed in some ways. And that's, uh, that's what started me back into it. And I've never really enjoyed um, just one-to-one work. I really like to work with groups. So later, I went through a little personal crisis, dropped out of my profession again, took some time off, was just kind of wandering the world again and got back to some roots of mine and stumbled upon some people. And I, I started working with shamanic processes, shamanic journey without plant medicine uh, because I was so steeped in the addiction profession. I didn't want to use substances. So I studied a process called shamanic breathwork and it comes from holotropic breathwork very deeply meaningful and transformational and somatic and was was able then to use that that practice to then let people dive deeply into the transformation they needed the healing they needed the changes they needed to make and then i went back into the addiction field and took that with me and then started working out of that i i started working again more with groups but i was working in an addiction treatment program for a long time in in Hawaii. And at the same time, I was leading workshops that you know about, Sharon, for primarily for physicians and therapists using shamanic practices that were then woven into neuroscience as, as neuroscience was really beginning to discover the, the way our brain changes is through emotional, somatic, not just intellectual practices. And teaching physicians really how to love themselves. And that then led me, as I said, that's how I ended up going to Hoffman because my partner in that work went to Hoffman first. And I, you know, did that for a little longer. And, and I just back to really answer your question of what I do about compassion fatigue is I take time off. I travel. I've walked the Camino in France several years in a row. I do a kind of a tremendous amount of self-care that for some people might border on self-indulgence and that's fine. They can think whatever they want, but that is, I have to say, I I'm a big advocate of taking big retreats every once in a while, taking many retreats regularly. It's almost like you take this time off only to rediscover that. Yep. I still want to go back to heal people. Yeah, that's true. It's a deep calling. Oh yeah, for you, one hundred percent. I witness it, and and you know it. But one thing strike. I mean, so many things. That was such a lovely um, journey down your professional career, and I'm sure there are still uh, many chapters that we missed. But I I do have a something came to me, which is here you are, this person who's drawn to spirituality in an industry that uh, completely forbids it. And then you choose to work with physicians who I imagine are highly intellectual, and yet you're bringing this somatic, shamanic, spiritual work to physicians. What 
was that like? Were you scared to bring that concept in? Like, how, how did you stay on the courageous path presenting this to an audience that I gotta believe was maybe the toughest audience to bring that concept into? It's interesting because one would assume that. I found it to be pretty much the opposite. I think what really, though, I have to give credit to my partner, Lee Lipsenthal, who um, is a physician himself. And we met through a series of odd circumstances as these things happen. And we, and he said, and I've been leading these uh, workshops for, for groups for a long time. And he said, let's, let's do it with physicians. And I thought, well, if he thinks we can, sure. And he said to me early on, you know, physicians are shamanic by nature. They are healers and they really do connect to mind, body, spirit, whether they know it or not. And I thought, okay. So yeah, the first time I did it, I'll tell you, I was not, I was not particularly worried because I had so much trust in the processes I was using. And then I found, here's what I found, is this incredible, open-hearted, caring that was in physicians that had been often drummed out of them in medical school. But it was there just just dying to be accessed and opened up. And so I find, I mean, I'm generalizing a bit here, but I have to say I find physicians who end up coming to a workshop like this, so they're pre-selected, are so ready to connect to their heart and their spirit. It's, it's easy to work with physicians who call themselves holistic and integrative. I mean, they're up for it. They've been meditating for years. But you know, very often I found in these workshops that a holistic family practitioner would bring her, her husband or they would bring their wife who were surgeons and so not into spirituality, nothing, just sitting there in the opening circle saying, this is, I can't do this. This is crazy. I'm just doing it because of my spouse. And yet, and yet, as we find in Hoffman as well, the process itself takes you underneath your intellect so quickly. So I love working with physicians. I like this thing you said, it's dying to come out. It's like, yes, it got drummed out of them, but all they needed was a little doorway, a little permission, and boom, it came out. I wonder how often that is, do you find that that's a theme around spirituality, or at least in the days where it was forbidden, has that been a theme for, for you? Yeah, that's funny you should say that. It, yeah, I did often have the sense that I was, you know, doing something illicit behind closed doors with, with suggesting people might want to check in with their, and when I say spirituality, what I'm really talking about is their deeper essence. That which we in Hoffman call the spiritual self is that eternal core that has been quieted for a lot of us until it until it isn't. I mean, and once awoken, it's it tends to stay awake and it awakens in different ways for people. And for some people, when that awakens, it it can be quite disorienting, disturbing. I mean, that's a whole other conversation we could have about what whether something is psychotic or whether it's spiritual emergency. But but that awakening, and that's all it is is an awakening because it's there already, as you know. That's what I love about Hoffman is that we just start right in and saying, okay, you got a spiritual self. It's always been there, even if you don't know it. <laughs> well, and so this is what got my next question is you've been through, you've been in this industry and seen it completely transform from the moment where you were told it's secular, you can't bring it up to the moment where now we bring up the word spirit in day one, minute zero, we start talking about it. What's your reflection on that uh, collective transition we've made? Evolution. 
inevitable evolution, some kind of, on, on a bigger story, I do think it's some kind of way in which we're moving along a spiral, coming back to, to the truth about ourselves. And that human experience that we talk so much about in Hoffman, that we're born into these families and we get patterns and we lose ourselves and we come back to ourselves, that does seem to be happening on a hugely global level. And astrologically, planetarily, this going into the darkness and losing ourselves and then coming back out. I think the transformation in the industry has a lot to do with the work of some really brave people in neuroscience and in, in particularly in the new field of neurocardiology and discovering, really discovering, which in fact Freud said, which is that all physical illness is, emanates, begins in emotional distress. And that, that's just become almost commonplace now. You can see how brain waves are affected and how our heartbeat and our heart rate variability affects our brain waves and impacts our, our neurotransmitters and impacts whether, you know, our stress hormones and how a simple thing like hands on heart and breathing in and out and through your heart shifts your heart rate that speaks to your brain that then changes everything. And then, you know, there's all of the, the talk about the penile gland, which is kind of called the God spot. So I think we have to credit the fact that medical science has, has caught up with what the mystics have been saying for eons. Well said, well said. It, w- one thing that sticks out to me is how you said it's about those courageous people. And I, I you know, I'm, I'm, you've got, you know, 15, 20 years on me. So I'm a little bit late to the game. I do remember when it was scary to say the word energy or soul or spirit in a workplace, for example. So, so from my perspective, it has been, you know, such a fast pace, but the truth is long before me, there were the courageous people who were starting to do this work. And it sounds like the the courage was bringing the, the work of spirit or mysticism into science and medicine. What strikes me, though, is this concept of the, the courageous people behind it. And, and it crosses my mind, what is the courageous ripple that I am putting out there by standing up for certain things or not standing for certain things or using certain words or not using certain words? And I don't know if that's about an age or phase of life or it's uniquely to this moment, regardless of age, but to realize that we have such an impact by staying courageous. Yeah. I, I think you, that's really well said, Sharon, that the people that I admire most as I look back over my career, are those that really stood up against the status quo and said what was taboo at the time. And that's where, where most change comes from. And that, that standing up, that courage comes from our hearts and really following our hearts or our, our spiritual guidance, regardless of how much resistance, not only from the outside we might feel, but from inside ourselves, the fear of speaking the truth, right? I mean, and we're, we're seeing this in our country and around the world right now in, in spades. It's, it's such an important thing to speak the truth. And I think it, that's an important thing to remember what you're saying, that, that it's those courageous people that did that, that has led us to the change that is good in the world today. Well, it's, it's to remember them. And then to, for me, at least it's reflecting on where am I that courageous person where obviously smaller, I'm not a neuroscientist and I'm not a PhD and all that, but, but what are, you know, with the words that I choose or the things that I stand up for, when have I 
shown up in a courageous way and when have I not? And, uh, you know, both are important for me to look at. Yes, both are important. In fact, what you just said about where have I not done that is probably a good starting point. And so I, I'm with you on that, Sharon, that I, I like to look at all the, the small ways that I am making a difference and all the ways that I'm not. And again, taking us back to Hoffman, I think that's one of the things that gets brought front and center is for us all to look at where am I the person that's doing the the evil things in the world? What's my, what maybe small way? Am I just like that evil person I don't like? How am I hurting others with my words or not being authentic, not stepping into my truth? Which is, I think, why we put such emphasis on self-love and self-compassion, because it's only when we're compassionate with ourselves that we can really admit our flaws and our faults and our shortcomings. And, and love ourselves into change rather than, you know, because otherwise we just want to repress it and stuff it in that box that I'm not that person. I, I'm really, I'm not a bigot. I'm not a racist. I'm not, I don't hurt people. I'm not a perpetrator. And yet it, it's really being able to bring out, as you're saying, where am I not courageous? And then step into, take a stand. You can do it every day, can't you? I mean, you can just really do it. Use the right words and catch yourself when you're not and make amends and apologize to others and yourself for that matter. Day, daily. You know? keep, it, oh, yeah. keep it clean every day. It's like brushing your teeth. You can't brush your teeth once a year. It's like three times a day. Beautiful. Great metaphor. Well, and I, I, this thing of stuffing it in the box, that's, that's where the physical ailments start. If we're, you know, you said self-love, self-compassion, and then we're able to love ourselves into healing. We're able to acknowledge our shortcomings. We're able to kind of like sit with our truth. And then if we're not, we're stuffing it in the box. And then guess what happens? Our bodies start to pay the price. Yeah. And then we become, it comes out sideways. It really is. I, I've learned at some point in my life, uh, thanks to my incredible teachers that I've had, that my life really is my responsibility, my mood, my physical health. There's no one, you know, nothing happening to me that I can't at least participate in healing. And I think there's that great, uh, I don't know quite the quote, but it's sort of like, you know, what happened to me in my childhood is not my fault, but it is my responsibility to heal it. And that, that's huge. And I know that we say my life is my responsibility a lot as teachers, but I, I have to say to all those listening, I have seen Nita through several phases of life. And it's true. I have seen you just take yourself and say, my life is my responsibility. I have seen you embody that. And it's, it's powerful. It is powerful. It's necessary for me. It saved my life to take that on because I did have big victim patterns <laughs> in my life, kind of unconsciously. And they, the, it was the p- victim thinking that somebody else is supposed to save or rescue me or someone else has done me wrong. It was really, really making me miserable. And understanding that, oh, I can work on this. I can heal myself. And, and it's, it's different than um, we often talk to people uh, about – it's not about self-blame, beating yourself up. It's the subtle difference of just saying, I love myself, and ouch, that feeling I'm having is hurting. That the memory of my 
with something that happens hurting. My memory that I hurt somebody else is hurting me. Just wanting to heal and stay vibrant. It becomes necessary for me, this daily healing. It's just necessary. Well, and you also have, and in, in anybody who's listening already saw this probably, but you have such a, a yes spirit. I mean, just in the way you spoke of your career path, there were so many moments where you said yes. I, I, I find one of the most striking things to me about you is your, your answer is usually yes, no matter what. Even for the podcast, I wrote her a text. You want to be my guest? I'd love to have you as my guest within 30 sec, within like three seconds. Yes. It's like your automatic answer to life is yes. And I don't know if you were always like that or if that was part of your transformation into my life is my responsibility. And that's when you stepped into it. But it is so apparent. Well, it, I'm, I'm chuckling because it's, I've always had the yes, but in my younger years, it was to my detriment. <laughs> it was like, I, I just, you know, yeah, let's do that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) That can get dangerous. It did. It did get dangerous. And, and, you know, it it switched from yes, out of um, having no sense of risk or danger, you know, just really out of um, a lack of self-worth, like, what the fuck, let's just do it. Sorry for my language. And (laughs) it switched to, ah, yes, because... I love myself and this is going to be good for me and others. And my life is my responsibility. So I want to switch gears a tiny bit. I know we're, we're getting towards the end, but I just want to switch gears. Now, you were raised on a reservation in your childhood, right? Can you tell me more about that? Because I suspect there are serious influences on who you are uh, today that go back to, those, to that experience. Yeah, big influences. Uh, my father worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And I grew up in South Central Arizona on the the Gila River Reservation. It's a lot, there's a lot to say about it. I'll just try to make really succinct what I felt I grew up with a lot of shame that I was white. I'll just say that to you. I it that was a predominant experience. We lived in government housing. Nothing fancy, of course. We lived in government housing. Most of my friends lived in, in houses that had dirt floors. And I was aware, although I didn't have words for it, of how much better my life was. And I felt a lot of shame about that. And I think that as a result of that, I spent a lot of years avoiding that shame as we do. And really feeling, you know, in the 60s when it became very popular to wear feathers in your hair and beat drums and you know, take on Native American spirituality. I was appalled. I wouldn't go anywhere near it. I was horrified. It felt like it was, I didn't have the word for appropriation, but that's what it felt like. So it took me a long time to come back to then dropping into what was so beautiful and powerful about my childhood. And one of the things I think I talk about in one of my books is that I had the great privilege of my neighbors were from the Nez Perce tribes in Idaho, but they lived in Arizona. Their grandmother would come and live with them six months out of the year. And she was an amazing and incredible influence on my life, Grandma Wilson. She would take us often for walks in the desert, and we would just walk for hours. And she would just say a few things like, well, okay, so notice what you see. And I remember just almost and not almost, I would go into these altered states walking with her, and everything was more alive. 
I think the combination of that incredible opportunity to be in that energy and with all of my friends who were Native and to also see the devastation, the poverty, and the atrocities that happened to people who were my best friends, you know, just by nature of their history and the genocide in this country. That all influenced me and also kept me locked away in wanting to really look at racism for a long time in my life. I do suspect, though, that it has opened my heart in a way that has impacted my work. So much. I'm so moved by, by what you just said. What a unique way to be both micro and macro at the same time both about your individual experience and about the collective at the same time. And it's who you are. You have this ability to be both in the total individual experience, yet also connected to the, to the collective. Here's maybe is where that was born, but, you know, I had so many reactions. First of all, like you said, have the ability to own our shame rather than avoid it. Have the ability to look at the built-in racism that if we are in status quo, we are embodying. And then this Grandma Grandma Wilson, I, I can't help but think you became the Grandma Wilson to your students, to the people in your workshop. I mean, you said it yourself. You were just in her present, and all she would do was say a couple things here and there. Notice what you see. And boom, you went into an altered state or boom, you noticed something about yourself or boom, you fell in love and appreciated nature or something you didn't see before. That was the hit I got very strong is this woman who was such an influential person for you. You in a way became that for so many by, by all the decades that you have devoted to people's transformation. I'm very moved by what you're saying, Sharon. It's very touching and too, if only... <laughs> I could become as profound and present as Grandma Wilson. I will have uh, really feel like I've accomplished something in life. And I thank you for that. I mean, I, I didn't meet her, but I the way you spoke of her is, A, how I feel around you. And I'm certain it's how your students and Hoffman and otherwise have felt around you. So, Wow. Were you able to ever reflect back to your parents the power that this experience living on the reservation had for you? Yeah, my mother, I, I was only about 23 when my mother died, so I didn't get an opportunity with my mother. Yeah, with my father I did. My father lived to be 90, and um, yeah, I had a few interesting conversations with him. My father was um, a racist, definitely. <laughs> I grew up, you know, with some pretty awful things being said around the house. And he also had some strange paradoxical connection to the earth, to the land. I mean, the job he did was riding horses a lot. He was in real reality. And he, after he retired, the tribe hired him to defend them in court against white people trying to take their land. So there was some strange paradox with my dad that I think sort of seeped through to me unconsciously. But I was able to talk to him about it. And we, we had a few beautiful, poignant, crying together moments about what an incredible childhood I had. And I, that's really one of the things that I thanked him for, you know, after I went through all my, you know, changes during the process, during that week, I came to that, the sort of positive legacy from my father was that I got to grow up where I grew up. 
and and I've told them that. That came about from the process, the Hoffman process. Yeah, because my father and I were estranged for a number of years. I can tell you, we it was not good. He was he had a lot of very abusive patterns and and so forth. So I I really moved very far away from him, and then after the process, was able to come back and and be with him in the last he you know I he lived next door to me I had him in a, in my little cottage next door to me in Hawaii for the last 4 years of his life and it was quite beautiful again post Hoffman Hoffman was quite the pivotal experience for you it sounds like even though you went kicking and screaming as you do Yes and you know back to that I have to say that it's that that my going kicking and screaming has given me a great appreciation for people who come to the process and a lot of resistance I just I said, bring it on. <laughs> when we get resistors, we're like, right there, go to Nita. Go check in with Nita. Okay, I want to take the last couple minutes to talk about the fact that you also wrote books. You're outrageously amazing to me. Why? What inspired you to write both of your books if you have time? But I'm particularly, well, I'm interested in both, but Women in Storage Club stands out to me. Well, that one, um, I, w- I wasn't drawn to write books. I actually wrote that one because my friend Lee Lipsenthal heard me in all the workshops we did talking about my personal experience of putting all my stuff in storage and going on walkabout more than once in my life. And I would bring it up, you know, for whatever reason, it would come in workshop because some somebody would say, and often it was women who would say, I don't know what to do. My life is over. My husband's left me or I'm leaving him or I've lost my job. And I don't know what to do. And um, I would sort of jokingly say, put all your stuff in storage and just go find yourself. And when I would say that, women would just, they would just light up. And all of a sudden, it became a thing, the Women in Storage Club. He said, you got to write a book. And again, kind of kicking and screaming, I did. And, and then I found, I found that I really love writing. And I've kind of kept doing it. I mean, part of what I do for Hoffman is I work with the program design team with, as you know, Andy Sossman, Linda Harker-Rice, that, uh, and we do a lot of the fluffing up and writing programs and developing the online programs, which I love. I love to write. And so the second book was, I felt it like uh, almost like a pregnancy, like I got to write this book about awakening shamanic consciousness and and did that with my very dear friend star wolf who um introduced me first to shamanic breath work so we ended up writing that book together and it was it was a really wonderful experience it sort of comes up and out when i write again so many themes to who you are spirit led and then this funny combo of kicking and screaming with yes it's like your answer is yes. Sometimes there's kicking and screaming, but they go, it's like they're the opposite, but not really. They kind of go together for you. Yeah, they do. And, and I often joke with my students in Hoffman that, you know, I really encourage everybody to listen to your spiritual self and follow its guidance, even when you don't want to. I argue with my spiritual self still regularly, like, oh God, no, that, no, no, <laughs> but I do it. Oh, I can't tell you how many times Nita has told me things and, and she's like, well, my spirit said so. I, I, that's what I have to do. Spirit says so. But that's, um, it, to me, that's an inspiration to be able to trust. I mean, talk about an invitation to surrender. When you have that level of trust in your spirit, you surrender. And yeah, sometimes there's kicking and screaming, but there is still a surrender and a trust in your spirit. Well, I learned the hard way that when I don't follow spirit, I'm miserable. And so rather than, I wasn't just a sort of, 
oh, I think this would be a good thing to do to follow spirit. It was, it was, you know, on my knees begging for, yes, okay, I'll do it. Please don't make me suffer anymore. Oh, I love it. We will end on that note, people. Follow your spirit or else you'll be miserable. Oh, Nita, there is so much to who you are. Um, I feel like even in just these, you know, half hour, 45 minutes, I was uh, able to experience the whole gamut of who you are. There is so much depth. I love every minute with you. And I think there's still so much more to know, to learn. Maybe you'll come back as a guest, but thank you so much for being here and for sharing some of your truths and your vulnerabilities and your life lessons. Thank you, Sharon. I I just have to say that it's a complete joy to be with you. And you have incredible ability to ask questions that really get to the heart of the matter. I've been really moved during this time. So thank you for that. You're the right person to be doing this. Oh, thank you, Nita. I love you, Nita. Love you, Sharon. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.